Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. I'm Trey Hooks, and with me as always is my co-host Blaine Dowler. How are you today, Blaine? I'm doing well. How about you, Trey? Good, thank you. This time, we're looking at the 23rd Annual Academy Awards, covering films released in 1950, and the best picture winner of that year, All About Eve, directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, who also wrote the screenplay. The film was released on October 13, 1950, and featured Betty Davis as Margot Channing, and Baxter as Eve Harrington, Celeste Holm as Karen Richards, Hugh Marlowe as Lloyd Richards, Gary Merrill as Bill Sampson, George Sanders as Addison DeWitt, and Thelma Ritter as Birdie. The film was based on the short story, The Wisdom of Eve, by Mary Orr. Our synopsis today comes to us from the lovely uh, Wikipedia. Margot Channing is one of the biggest stars on Broadway, but having just turned 40, she's worried about what her advancing age will mean for her career. After a performance of Margot's latest play, Aged in Wood, Margot's close friend Karen Richards, wife of the play's author Lloyd Richards, brings in a besotted fan, Eve Harrington, to meet Margot. Eve tells the group gathered in Margot's dressing room, Karen, Lloyd, Margot's boyfriend Bill Sampson, a director who's eight years her junior, and Margot's maid Bernie, that she followed Margot's last theatrical tour to New York City after seeing her perform in San Francisco. She tells an engrossing story of growing up poor in Wisconsin, and losing her young husband, Eddie, in the South Pacific during World War II. Moved, Margot quickly befriends Eve, takes her into her home, and hires her as her assistant, leaving Bertie, who instinctively dislikes Eve, feeling put out. Eve quickly manipulates her way into Margot's life, acting as her secretary and adoring fan. She seems to anticipate Margot's every need, including placing a long-distance phone call to Bill when Margot forgets his birthday. Margot becomes increasingly distrustful and bitter towards her, particularly after she catches Eve taking a bow to an empty theater while pretending to wear Margot's costume for Ashton Wood. Margot arranges her producer, Max Fabian, to hire Eve at his office, but instead, Eve manages to become Margot's understudy without Margot's knowledge. As Margot's irritation grows, Karen feels sorry for Eve. In hopes of humbling Margot, Karen arranges for her to miss a performance of Ashton Wood so Eve will have to perform in her place. Eve invites the city's theater critics, including the acerbic Addison DeWitt, to attend that evening's performance, which is a triumph for her. After that evening's performance, Eve tries to seduce Bill, but he rejects her. Instead, Addison takes her under his wing and interviews her for a column that criticizes Margot for not making way for new talents like Eve. Margot and Karen are furious. Margot and Bill announce their engagement at dinner with the Richardses, in the club room of the stuck, excuse me, in the cub room of the stork club. Eve, who was dining at a nearby table with the wit, calls Karen into the ladies' room, and after first appearing regretful, 
tells her to either ask Lloyd to give her the part of Cora, the lead in Lloyd's next play, Footsteps Are on the Ceiling, or she will reveal Karen's role in Margot's misperformance. Before Karen can talk with Lloyd, Margot announces to everyone's surprise that she does not wish to play Cora and would prefer to continue in Aged and Wood. Eve is cast as Cora, just before the out-of-town premiere of Footsteps on the Ceiling at the Schubert in New Haven, Eve presents Addison with her next plan, to marry Lloyd, who she claims has come to her professing his love and his eagerness to leave his wife for her. Now, Eve exults, Lloyd will write brilliant plays showcasing her. Angered that Eve believes she can manipulate him as easily as she does everyone else, Addison reveals that he knows that her backstory is all lies. Her real name is Gertrude Slosinski, Slo- she was never married, and she had been paid to leave town over an affair with her boss. Addison blackmails Eve, informing her that she will not be marrying Lloyd or anyone else. In exchange for Addison's silence, she now belongs to him. Several months later, Eve is a shining Broadway star headed for Hollywood at an awards banquet. She thanks Margot, Bill, Lloyd, and Karen with characteristic effusion, while all four stare back at her coldly. Eve skips a party in her honor and returns home alone, where she encounters Phoebe, a high school-age fan, who has slipped into her apartment and fallen asleep. The young girl professes her adoration and begins at once to insinuate herself into Eve's life, offering to pack Eve's trunk for Hollywood. While Eve rests in the other room, Phoebe dons the elegant robe that Eve wore to the banquet and poses in front of a multi-pane mirror, holding the award as if it were a crown. So... There's a lot to unpack here, Blaine. Where would you like to begin? Yeah, a lot of this was... I don't know. It's interesting. On the one hand, when I was watching it, it was a very good movie. But on the other hand, you may have remember I said a few months ago that the next movie I'd seen was An American in Paris. I had seen this. I don't... It wasn't recent. But as I was watching it, I remembered seeing everything as it was coming. But not well enough to remember what was coming next. So that was kind of a weird experience. Normally I, I remember things a little better than that. It's it's either no memory whatsoever, it's not familiar, or I remember it in a fair amount of detail. But I would say to begin with, this is this is a character piece, first and foremost. This isn't so much about plot, it's about the people and how they interact. And because of that, the reason it works so well is the power of the performances. If you had a lesser cast, this movie simply wouldn't work. I agree. This is definitely an actor's showcase. I mean, we have everyone you mentioned. One of the people that wasn't mentioned, Marilyn Monroe, has a small part as Miss Caswell. She's an an up-and-comer that Addison brings to a party, and I think it was Addison. Anyway, she's brought as a guest to a party, and she's basically sent after producers saying, yeah, that, that producer there, go make him happy. It will be good for your career. And of course, Thelma Ritter is fairly heavily featured in the first half and then goes away. But she is always fantastic. This is about six years before she shows up in Rear Window, which is possibly my all-time favorite Hitchcock film. I I don't say this in a way to slight her, but she perfected the Hollywood housekeeper role for the 50s and 60s, kind of playing that world-weary, wiser-than-the-people-she-works-for um, type character. Yeah, like it, like I said, it's not intended as a slight. She saw yeah. an, a niche that needed to be filled and filled it. I, I think it's also to the point that it wouldn't surprise me if by the time her career was wrapping up, P- 
people were creating those roles specifically with her in mind. Well, for example, we briefly mentioned it in a past episode because it had been nominated. Joseph Mankiewicz had also directed A Letter to Three Women, and Thelma Ritter played a very similar role in that film. And based off of her performance in A Letter to Three Women, Mankiewicz specifically wrote the part of Bertie for Thelma Ritter in All About Eve. Okay, so that was happening even sooner than I realized. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, Betty Davis. She's no newcomer to the uh, Academy Awards, but this was her coming back from something of a professional slump. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it is interesting. I mean, she was close to the age of her character because they talk about how she was a 40-year-old playing a 24-year-old, which I guess was very common on the stage at that time. And that was something Mankiewicz was pointing out, that these new up-and-coming talented actresses weren't getting these parts. At the time this was filmed, she was 42. So pretty much right in line with that 40-something. And that's what you mean, because All About Eve was coming up. You know, if I look at her list of movies... The last one that I think is quite well known before this was Mr. Skeffington from 1944. A lot of the ones in between haven't really made that, that pop culture impact where even the film nerds are hearing about them. Although her career kept going steadily right up until her death in 1989. She was working, you know, right up to the end. But yeah, things were very different before and after, or the, the years immediately before and after this. And she nails this part, and there's a little bit of a self-awareness there where, you know, she has to recognize that she is not the the sex symbol that she used to be. That was a huge part of this character. It's coming to terms with the fact that, yes, you are aging, and what it takes for that character to choose what are considered age-appropriate roles. I'm not saying that everyone has to play age-appropriate roles, but... Yeah, if you're on stage and the part is written for a 24-year-old and you're 40, it's going to be tougher to convince the audience that you are that character. It's not, it's subtle, but I I also think there's a commentary there on how Broadway and the stage caters to younger characters. There's a sense of Margot would love to play a 40-year-old woman in a successful play, but that's going to require someone to write a play about a 40-year-old woman. Mm-hmm. Yes, that that is also very true. You need someone whose... The role has to exist for her in order to play it. So um, we, we also have Celeste Holm here, who has been writing a pretty high wave. I, I think she first got introduced, if you will, in Gentleman's Agreement, which we've previously covered. But she also was, it was a voiceover role, but she's another alum of A a Letter to Three Wives. She's the unseen antagonist in that film. And here she plays Margot's best friend, uh, Karen Richards. And I love Celeste Holm. There's just something about, she has such a friendly presence that it kind of puts you at ease in a film no matter what the subject matter is as much as she had an incredible career i think i first got to know her as kelly's grandmother on cheers (laughs) in season 10 back in the early 90s but yeah she was another one that was working right up until her end and 
in 2012, and this was early in her career. Yeah. Yeah, I think Gentleman's Agreement was her third role. Okay. And it has just, at least the third one, released. Because in these years, there's Little Girls in Blue from 1946, and then Carnival in Costa Rica and Gentleman's Agreement were both 47, 2 and 48, four movies in 1949. And this is the second of three in 1950. So there's... At that point, I don't know what the average turnaround was between finishing filming and releasing films. So it's possible that they were released in a different order than they were filmed. That's probably more pronounced now as they're targeting release dates and doing a wider variety of time spent in post-production, especially if you've got a lot of special effects involved. She was in there. She, she works really well here. And you could see how what she was trying to use as a prank by setting it up so that Margot would miss a performance just backfired and her reaction. So after she realizes that Eve is blackmailing her, which is, that is a pivotal scene. And we talked about how these are performances. Prior to that, I think before that scene, if you wanted to read the film as, no, Anne is just, or Eve is just a devoted fan, it you can. If you want to read it as manipulative, you can. So there, even though there's different perspectives and people debating it, and people are going more and more manipulative, you could make a case that, no, they're reading too much into it. Until that scene in the cub room. At that point, there is no turning back. That's when Eve flat out blackmails Karen. And Minkwitz does something really deft there. And Karen comes back to the table. She obviously has a moral dilemma. And then Margot completely deflates it by saying, I'm marrying Bill... I've decided to worry more about being happy personally than professionally. I'm still a great actress. I'm still in a great play. I'm going to be content with what I have. And you think Karen has gotten off the hook. And then Eve sets her sights on Lloyd. And that's when Karen really pays for her betrayal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, Lloyd being Karen's husband, yes. It's, yeah, it, it pays off so well, especially with Karen's hysterical laughter when she thinks she's released. And of course, so much of this is George Sanders' Edison DeWitt, who starts the the movie as the narrator. But we talked about this movie ends at a party in her honor. Most of this movie is actually a flashback. So it starts off at an awards banquet with George Sanders narrating as Edison DeWitt. And then we get a a couple of quick flashbacks, and Karen's is the longest. That's probably over an hour in a two-hour, 20-minute runtime. And it's only the last, what, half an hour that take place after that flashback? Yes. So, you know, it does really spread out nicely. And then, yeah, when that's done, it's interesting because we do have the, the possibility of an unreliable narrator because they say, yeah, I don't remember where we were going. So they are narrating and don't remember all the details. So you could think that there is something reading into that. Although they didn't go to the degree others would. I mean, this came out the same year as Rashomon, which takes that to a whole other level. But that's a different conversation. And if you're interested in that conversation, you can listen to Blaine and Paul talk about it on an episode of Visit Jaws. <laughs> that is true, yes. But, yeah, at, really at the end of the day, like I said, this is all about the performances and... I'm running out of new things to say because every performer just nailed it. George Sanders is Edison Duet. I now want to go researching because it's of the era where it's 
it's entirely within the realm of possibility that these guys were doing radio work as well. And I think George Sanders would be incredible on the radio. So I want to check these old-time radio shows and see if he was doing any of those. In a film that is ruled by the female performances, let's be honest. And I'm not trying to slight Gary Merrill or Hugh Marlowe when I say this. They're fine. But when everybody else is excellent, it's easy for fine to get lost. I think George Sanders is the only one who keeps up with his female co-stars in this film in terms of level of performance. Yeah, absolutely. And some of that is also the material. I mean, this is not just... It's not just that the, the female performers were overshadowing most of their male counterparts by the power of their performance, although it was happening. The female characters were that much more rich, motivated, and vital on the script level. This is a case where Addison DeWitt is really the only male character who has a significant income or influence over the, the ultimate outcome. I mean, aside from the fact that Lloyd was writing good plays and Bill was directing them well, that's it. They are consistent throughout and it's rarely their decisions that change the course of things. This, so even at the, at the level of writing, Addison was the only male character that really changed the course of events. And Addison DeWitt is so delicious of a part for him. I mean, if you if you only know George Sanders as being Shere Khan in Disney's Jungle Book, this is somewhat a similar part, so there's a through line there. Yeah, you know, I knew him as uh, one of the first actors to play the saint in film in the 30s. He um, started that series. And I'll use this as our segue to talk about Ann Baxter. Just weird synchronicity. Of course, he was the first Mr. Freeze in the Adam West Batman TV series. And after his two-parter, Ann Baxter was uh, Zelda the Great in the very next two episodes. But this is very early in Ann Baxter's career as well. Yeah. And we, before we went to Ann Baxter, we have actually discussed... George Sanders briefly before. So while he was doing the Saint movies in the 30s, um, actually in between the Saint Takes Over and the Saint's Double Trouble, he was Jack Favell and Rebecca. That's right. That's right. I had forgotten that. But yeah, Ann Baxter is the next one that we really need to discuss as the, the titular Eve. Yeah, she was... It's a fine line to walk where it appears that the character has taken a complete turn. And it can be tough to do, and it can be tough to direct. A recent one I saw that stands out in my memory, there's an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine where you find out that one of the main cast members was replaced by a shapeshifter about five or six weeks before. And the moment that reveal happens, the actor changed the way he plays the character. So he starts doing a little evil grin and stuff like that as soon as the audience is let in on the secret. So it... It feels very abrupt and very disingenuous because there was none of that there. So why wasn't, you know, why did he suddenly change it just because the audience finds out? Which is a common problem when you reveal something about a character to the audience, then the character stops acting the way they used to. Or even things like the Winter Soldier stops wearing the mask in the Captain America movies once the audience gets confirmation of who he is. But Ann Baxter, as directed by Mankiewicz, the two of them together put that fine line on it where she seems initially like she is just this innocent little girl and then you find out she's a lot more than that 
but even after the reveal, it doesn't feel out of place. She played it in a way that all those elements could have been there and she was consciously suppressing them. And now she's not. So it, it doesn't feel like it's coming out of nowhere. Which It's a very fine line to walk and they pulled it off. Well, and as you said, particularly if you're watching it for the first time, it becomes a little harder to accept in the latter half of the film. But particularly in the first half, it's very easy to read it as, you know, Bertie's jealous, Margot's paranoid, you know, Eve hasn't done anything. Now, by the time she's set her sight on Lloyd, by then she's kind of revealed her cards to the audience so you have a better idea of what's going on. But other than Lloyd doing a few, you know, occasionally doing an exaggerated, oh, come on, everybody's just picking on Eve. When she talks about how he's besotted with her and he's going to leave Karen for her and all of that, that's never shown. You never see Lloyd make a play for Eve. That's all from Eve's perspective. Yeah, and you, you don't know how much she's manipulating to make that happen. It's So that part, it, that part did seem to come out of nowhere, but I thought that that was another thing she was making up to get others on her side to help make it a reality. Because she just wants this fame and fortune others have had and that success for herself and taking the symbols of it. But I think she she walked that line. The only hint we get early on, which honestly rubs me a little bit the wrong way, is where she's talking about when she was young, she had problems distinguishing between the real and the unreal. And it the reason that rubbed me the wrong way, as a teacher, I am aware of a lot of students who've got mental issues. I'm glad that... It, this is now being shared with school staff because there has been a stigma about mental health issues for a long time that has reduced in recent years, but not been eliminated by any means. And I I thought that that line didn't need to be included because it made her more victim and less manipulator. And I think it would, I don't know, to, to me, it, it casts aspersions on the people who are dealing with mental health issues saying yeah, if this is the kind of person you are, this is the kind of thing you can become. I I think that line could have been removed, and it was and not had. Oh no, she's she's got mental health issues, and that's why she's like this. It's just no, she's just like this because she's narcissistic and self centered, and this is her the way she plans to get in. That's interesting because I I took that line a, a different way. I I took it that she was saying that she was something of a daydreamer who wanted to escape her drab world, and that was part of the line she was selling as to get into Margot's world. I, I didn't take it literally as she had trouble discerning uh, reality from fantasy. Okay, well, yeah, hopefully the way you read it is the way it was intended. I now want to go back and see if Mankiewicz has done kind of a more straight-up mystery because he plays by the mystery rules and that's what I like about it. If you pay attention, you start to see the cracks when Addison is first interviewing Eve because he he never dwells on it, but there are times when, you know, he'll say, so where was it that you first saw Margot in San Francisco? Oh, it was the Schubert. Oh yes, the Schubert, a lovely old store theater, you know. And then when she finally has a part, 
its out-of-town trial is at the Schubert, but the Schubert's not in San Francisco, it's in Connecticut, you know. So if, if you're paying attention, you can see the things as the story plays out, the lies that she told that Addison saw through. But Mankiewicz, in, until he goes off on his, goes off on her in the climax, Mankiewicz never hangs a lantern on it. Yeah, you can tell just the way he was conducting that conversation. I was expecting him to be testing and looking for it. So, you know, yeah, this reporter is asking these very leading questions to get the yes or no answers. And she's got delayed responses, which was unusual for Eve. Yeah, I, I knew he was setting her up and I figured, yeah, he's going to use this conversation to poke holes in her story down the road. But yeah, you're right that the exact nature of it comes out. And I'm I may have only picked up on that because that style of conversation has since become a cliche. I cannot think of instances prior to this that work that way. Maybe there's a few of them in the radio. Again, because there was some, you know, mystery is my hobby. I'd have to check the release years on that because that used them a lot. And that might have predated 1950 because there's a lot of detective shows on the radio in the, the late 40s and early 50s. That is a possibility. I while you were speaking, I did take a quick look at Mankiewicz's uh, filmography, and the only one that jumped that jumped out at me as definitely having a mystery element would be The Quiet American. So he wrote the 1958 version of that film. So I haven't seen the 1958 version. I've just seen the much more recent version with Michael Caine and Brendan Fraser, because that's my wife is originally from Vietnam, so we're trying to watch. A lot of movies that were filmed in Vietnam. So she has that little piece of home. Which is a, a very eclectic bunch, we'll say. The New Quiet American, Kong Skull Island, Pan. We haven't gotten around to watching Pan or Avatar The Last Airbender yet. Because they do not have good reputations for film. We will be watching that for the scenery. Yeah, it, the, like you said, there are, there's definitely that mystery element as well. And if you're aware of the mystery genre, like that conversation that they have might be your first tip off that, oh, there is that mystery element and maybe things are not what they seem. Because that the way that conversation is constructed has, like I said, it. I'm not confident that it was a cliche at the time they made this movie, but it's certainly a cliche today. It's funny the things that we learn as doing this podcast. I knew, uh, I think it's actually his grandson, is one of the presenters for... Um, Turner Classic Movies, but I had not made the connection that his son was Tom Mankiewicz, who was also a famous uh, screenwriter. Most in our circle will know him for his work on Superman the Motion Picture. Yep, he was credited as a creative consultant because he was behind on his Writers Guild dues at the time, but he did a page one rewrite on the Superman script. But he's, yeah, if that is... If you um, listen to the director's cut with the commentary, Tom Mankiewicz and Richard Donner do it together, and it is one of the most riveting commentaries I've ever heard. He is also known for writing several of the Roger Moore James Bond films. You may recall the first spoken line that Gene Hackman has as Lex Luthor is watching Ned Beatty's Otis while the monitor is going, it's amazing that Brayton, or amazing that Brayton can generate enough power to keep those legs moving. And it stood out in his mind well enough that 25 years later, Tom Mankiewicz was signing into a hotel in, you know, somewhere in the Bahamas or the, the Caribbean. And he hears the voice of Gene Hackman behind him going, it's amazing, that brain can generate enough power to keep that pen moving. So, <laughs> uh, anyway, shall we go through the 
other nominations and other nominees and categories for the, the 23rd annual Academy Awards here. Before we do, just something that struck me that I just wanted to get your input on. I saw that in contemporary times, a lot of critics interpret Eve as an early example of a lesbian in cinema. A lot of people read her performance that there's a romantic interest in Margot. Did that come across to you at all? No, I didn't get a romantic interest in Margot. I got I got that she was romantically interested in the men her female idols were romantically interested in. So it's not, you know, her when she was trying to sway Bill or Lloyd to be with her instead of the women, it wasn't because she was particularly interested in Bill and Lloyd. It's because she wanted the men that these women had. So it's about taking their success. So yeah, well, there is a definite obsession with Margot. I never saw anything that would indicate that there was a romantic interest in Margot coming from Eve. Did you? No, no I... I... I didn't, and, you know, I'm not one to say that anyone's opinion or interpretation is invalid, so that's not why I bring it up. But I just, I I thought I would mention it because I wanted to see if maybe you noticed the nuance that I didn't, so. Okay. Yeah, so maybe, I don't know, maybe people who are members of that lesbian community or closer to it are recognizing hints that we are just not aware to look for. In any event, getting to these nominations, so this was, uh, the nominees were announced on February 12th, 1951. The awards ceremony happened on March 29th, 1951 at the Archeo Pantages Theatre in Hollywood, hosted by Fred Astaire. Obviously, All About Eve won Best Picture. It beat out Born Yesterday, Father of the Bride, King Solomon's Mines, and Sunset Boulevard. Best Director went to Joseph L. Mankovich for All About Eve beating out John Huston in The Asphalt Jungle, George Kakor for Born Yesterday, Billy Wilder for Sunset Boulevard, and Carol Reed for The Third Man. Best Actor went to Jose Ferrer as the title character in Cyrano de Bergerac. There were no nominations for All About Eve. Louis Calhern was nominated for Magnificent Yankee, Wildem Holden for Sunset Boulevard, James Stewart for Harvey, and Spencer Tracy for Father of the Bride. Best Actress went to Judy Holliday for Born Yesterday. So I'm tempted to track that down just to see that performance because Ann Baxter and Betty Davis were both nominated in this category. And they both gave what I consider to be flawless performances. Also nominated were Eleanor Parker for Caged and Gloria Swanson for Sunset Boulevard. I will say that Born Yesterday is a fine film. And this is one in which I can only think that Judy Holiday won because somehow Ann Baxter and Betty Davis split the vote by both being nominated for the same film. Even then, I thought Gloria Swanson gave a better performance than Judy Holiday for Sunset Boulevard, so I'm, I'm out of sync with the 19... Uh... Okay, fair enough. Best Supporting Actor, George Sanders for All About Eve as Addison DeWitt, which doesn't surprise me. He beat out Jeff Chandler for Broken Arrow, Edmund Gwynn for Mr. 880, Sam Jaffe for The Asphalt Jungle, and Eric von Stroheim for Sunset Boulevard. And Best Supporting Actress went to Josephine Hall for Harvey, which I 
am totally okay with, even though she is up against both Celeste Holm and Thelma Ritter in this film. Yep. Also, Hope Emerson for Caged, and Nancy Olsen for Sunset Boulevard. Best screenplay did go to All About Eve, based on, as you said, Mary Orr's short story, The Wisdom of Eve. Also nominated were the screenwriters for Asphalt Jungle, Born Yesterday, Broken Arrow, and Father of the Bride. Best story and screenplay went to Sunset Boulevard, beating out Adam's Rib, Caged, The Men, and No Way Out. Best motion picture story went to Panic in the Streets, which is also a very good movie, beating out Bitter Rice, The Gunfighter, Mystery Street, and When Willie Comes Marching Home. Best documentary feature, The Titan, Story of Michelangelo, beat out With These Hands. Best documentary short subject, Why Korea, beat out The Fight, Science Against Cancer, and The Stairs. Best live action short subject, One Real, Granddad of Races, beat out Blaze Busters and Wrong Way Butch. The Live action short subject two reeler went to In Beaver Valley, beating Grandma Moses and My Country Tis of Thee. The best short subject cartoons went to Gerald McBoing Boing, beating out Jerry's Cousin and Trouble Indemnity. Best scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture went to Franz Waxman's work for Sunset Boulevard, beating out Alfred Newman for All About Eve, The Flame and the Arrow, No Sad Songs for Me, and Samsman and Delilah. Best scoring for a musical. Went to Adolf Deutsch and Roger Edens for Annie Get Your Gun. Beating out Disney's Cinderella, I'll Get By, Three Little Words, and The West Point Story. Best original song went to Mona Lisa from Captain Carey USA. Beating out Be My Love from The Toast of New Orleans, Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo from Cinderella, Mule Train from Singing Guns, and Wilhelmina from Wabash Avenue. Best sound recording went to Thomas T. Moulton for All About Eve. Beating out the nominees from Cinderella, Louisa, our very own and trio. Art direction, the set direction for Black and White, went to Sunset Boulevard, beating out All About Eve and the Red Danube. The set direction color went to Samson and Delilah, beating out Annie Get Your Gun and Destination Moon. Black and White cinematography went to all of, or sorry, went to The Third Man. Robert Krasker was the, the cinematographer there, beating out All About Eve, Asphalt Jungle, The Furies, and Sunset Boulevard. Again, I am totally okay with that loss, even though All About Eve was good in this category. Uh-huh. Color cinematography, King Solomon's Minds, Beat Out Annie Get Your Gun, Broken Arrow, Flame in the Arrow, and Samson and Delilah. Black and White Costume Design, All About Eve, Beat Out Born Yesterday, and The Magnificent Yankee. And Costume Design Color, Samson and Delilah, Beat Out Black Rose, and That Foresight Woman. Film editing went to King Solomon's Minds beating out All About Eve, Annie Get Your Gun, Sunset Boulevard, and The Third Man. And Best Special Effects, Destination Moon, beat out Samson and Delilah. Honorary awards went to George Murphy for his services in interpreting the film industry to the country at large, and Louis B. Mayer for distinguished service to the motion picture industry. Best Foreign Language Film went to The Walls of Malpaga from France and Italy. The Irving G. Thalbuck Memorial Award went to Daryl F. Zanuck. Yeah, and then... The multiply nominated awards. All About Eve had 14 nominations, beating the previous record set by Gone with the Wind by one. Sunset Boulevard had 11. Born Yesterday and Samson and Delilah had five each. Andy Get Your Gun and Asphalt Jungle had four each. Uh, Broken Arrow Cage, Cinderella, Father of the Bride, King Solomon's Minds, and the Third Band had three each. Destination Moon, Flame and the Arrow, Harvey and the Magnificent Yankee had two each. And the multiple award winning films. All About Eve won six. Sunset Boulevard won three. And King Solomon's Mines and Samson and Delilah won two each. 
So before we get into, you know, the Golden Globes and the way these, these have been rated over time at Letterboxd and IMDb, how do you feel about All About Eve winning up against Born Yesterday, Father of the Bride, King Solomon's Minds, and Sunset Boulevard? They picked the right picture. The only serious contender that could have upset it would have been Sunset Boulevard. Okay. And, and, and just, uh, you mentioned the number of nominations. That's why I had first seen the film. I, I worked at a video store after high school. And one of the, you, you had to do a little quiz as part of your interview. And one of the questions at the time was, what was the you know film to receive the most nominations? And a lot of films that I hadn't seen before, I sought out shortly after getting that job based off of the questions that were on the quiz, and All About Eve was one of them. And with my prep, I was trying to watch a lot of the 1950 releases, because this, this year saw a lot of good movies, and sadly, some unexpected things came up in the past couple of days, so Sunset Boulevard is the one I didn't get a chance to see. I have seen the original Father of the Bride, though not recently. It is available for streaming on the Tubi.tv streaming service, which is free. It's just ad-supported. You really have to sift through their library to find the good stuff, but they do have a lot of good stuff in there. There's just more, you know, not-so-good stuff. But I have also seen The Asphalt Jungle, The Third Man, and yeah, of those I've seen, I would certainly give it to All About Eve. I do still want to see Sunset Boulevard. It's somewhat legendary. Um, I've recently started using Coolector movie database software, so that's like Collector, but with an extra O. Not quite as fully featured as the collectors.com stuff with the Z at the end, but you can get it for free if you're willing to wait 30 seconds for the software to open, or you can pay 9 bucks for lifetime access, which is about one month's cost of the other collector stuff. It is nice. It actually, it will flag not just what you own, but it will give you predictions for what other movies you would like. And it, it's telling me I would probably prefer Sunset Boulevard to All About Eve, but also telling me it's going to be a close race. Sunset Boulevard is more of a noir film. The story structure is actually pretty similar, but Sunset Boulevard is a darker film. Okay, so knowing my tastes and my, my penchant for noir, it's probably right that I would be picking Sunset Boulevard over All About Eve. And in fact, the Golden Globes did exactly that. So this year was the 8th annual Golden Globes, and their Best Picture nominees were pretty similar. They had Sunset Boulevard as their final choice, as the winner, but it was up against All About Eve, Born Yesterday, Cyrano de Bergerac, and Harvey. Best Actor in a Drama went to Jose Ferrer as Cyrano de Bergerac. They, all other nominees were Louis Calhoun in The Magnificent Yankee and James Stewart for Harvey. I have no idea why Harvey was nominated as a drama rather than a comedy or musical, but it was. I, I disagree with that categorization and strongly recommend people check out Harvey. Best Actress, that one did go to Gloria Swanson for Sunset Boulevard, beating out Betty Davis and Judy Holliday. Best performance by an actor in a comedy went to Fred Astaire for Three Little Words, beating out Dan Daly for When Millie Comes Marching Home and Harold Lloyd for Mad Wednesday. I suspect that's because it's comedy or musical. We haven't talked about Fred Astaire much because he doesn't get a lot of Oscar nominations. Uh -uh. As a dancer, you cannot fault him. 
as an actor, you can easily fault him. I find he's he is a performer. He's not an actor. You go to a Fred Astaire movie for the singing and dancing and not for the acting. At least that's my opinion. I don't know how you feel, Trey. For his 30s work, I'd agree a little bit. But I, th- I thought he actually matured into a pretty good um, character actor towards the end of his career. Okay. Next up is the best performance by an actress in a comedy or musical. Judy Holiday won for Born Yesterday. So I'm really wondering how the Golden Globes work. Whether they just write in ballots and they tallied up all of them because she was ended up nominated as Best Actress for the Drama for the same film. So apparently you could be in both categories. She beat out Spry Byington for Louisa and Betty Hutton for Annie Get Your Gun. Best Performance by an Actor in a Supporting Role went to Edmund Gwynn for Mr. 880, beating George Sanders and Eric von Stroheim. Supporting Actress, again, Josephine Hall for Harvey, beating out Judy Holliday for Adam's Rib and Thelma Ritter for All About Eve. Best Director went to Billy Wilder for Sunset Boulevard, beating out George Kikor for Born Yesterday, John Houston for Asphalt Jungle, and Joseph L. Mankiewicz for All About Eve. Screenplay went to All About Eve, beating Asphalt Jungle and Sunset Boulevard. The score went to Sunset Boulevard, beating out Life of Verona and Destination Moon. Black and White Cinematography, Cyrano de Bergerac, beat out Asphalt Jungle and Sunset Boulevard. Color Cinematography, King Solomon's Minds, beat out Broken Arrow and Samson and Delilah. New Star of the Year, Gene Nelson, beat out Mala Powers and Debbie Reynolds. Only one of those is a name I remember hearing, so I maybe they didn't make the right choice there. Promoting International Understanding went to Broken Arrow, which beat out The Big Lift and The Next Voice You Hear. And the Henrietta Award for World Film Favorites went to Gregory Peck and Jane Wyman. I'm not sure what that award was all about. So the Golden Globes gave it to Sunset Boulevard. If you look at the... Uh, letterboxed ratings. They are saying that the number one best movie of the year from 1950 is Sunset Boulevard. They've got Rashomon in second, Cinderella in third, and All About Eve comes in fourth. Mm, I'm as much of a Disney file as anyone else, but I have a hard time with Cinderella beating All About Eve. Sorry, go ahead. I, I would too. I think, looking at Letterboxd in general, I think a lot of the Disney animated classics are rated through nostalgia tinted goggles. So I, I think that a lot of them tend to be overrated. But then again, I'm also the guy who says that Disney's best traditionally animated movie is Sword in the Stone, which is rarely put at the top of anyone's lists. So yeah, so the top 12 also includes Asphalt Jungle, Harvey, and Gun Crazy. We got Winchester 73 and Rio Grande coming in. Born Yesterday is the next nominee. And they're saying it's the 18th best movie of the year. Father of the Bride is in 24th. And then King Solomon's Mines is more like 43rd. So that's Sunset Boulevard has an average letterbox score of 4.4 out of 5. And All About Eve is at 4.3. So it's not a super close race. But, you know, or it, it, it's fairly close. But yeah, Sunset Boulevard does edge it out. Born Yesterday comes in at 3.7. Father of the Bride at 3.4, and King Solomon's Mines at a 3.0 out of 5. Now, looking at IMDb, again, Sunset Boulevard is coming in in the number one place. That's at 8.4 out of 10. Then Los Olvidados, which is a Louis Buñuel film, that's coming in at number two 
on the IMDb. It was number five on Letterboxd. Rashomon is number three, and All About Eve is number four. So while this is saying that the critics agree that Sunset Boulevard is better than All About Eve, All About Eve is also number 138 on the IMDb's top 250 films of all time. So nobody is saying All About Eve is a bad movie and undeserving of the win in isolation. It's just that, you know, Sunset Boulevard comes in at number 65 of all time. So while, you know, while Trey agrees with the Academy, based on his description of Sunset Boulevard and my personal tastes, I may agree with sort of the, the history that Sunset Boulevard is a better film. But I don't think anyone is saying All About Eve doesn't, is undeserving of the nomination or the win. It was just, there were two really good films released that year. No, definitely. I think, I think the only thing that Sunset Boulevard is best if you come into it blind. The film itself is not camp, but it is one of the more parodied films of the era, and sometimes that can get stuck in your head. It's one of those films, and I love Sunset Boulevard. I'm not ragging on it at all, but I also can't watch it and not also see in the back of my mind the Carol Burnett and Harvey Corman sketch making fun of Sunset Boulevard, if that makes any sense. And sometimes that affects kind of how you view things in hindsight. This is true. Incidentally, there is uh, one other 1950 film on that IMDb Top 250 list. Rashomon comes in at number 127. Although Rashomon, it would have been ineligible for the 1950 awards because it didn't premiere in America until 1951. So that would not have been eligible for these 23rd annual awards. It would have been eligible for the 24th or 25th, depending on whether that December 26, 1951 was Los Angeles. And taking a quick skim of the next year's Academy Awards, I would say that, yes, that Los Angeles was included in that December 26, 1951 release. This Rashomon ends up, it, it takes the best foreign language film of 1951. So just, yeah, three really great films came out in one year. I don't know if we will say the same about 1951. Do we want to say anything else about All About Eve before we tell our listeners where they can catch up with us next month? Just that we've covered a lot of great films so far on this podcast. Please, 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 if you have not seen this movie, watch this movie. I am recommending it on the same order that I recommend All Quiet on the Western Front and Casablanca. It's in that same rarefied air. Granted, it is the 1950s. So your mileage of what is pro-feminist may vary, but I do think for its time, this was a very pro-feminist film. I I think this passes the Bechdel test, especially if you look at it in light of while Bill Sampson and Lloyd Richards are um, targets of Eve's obsession, her gaining them is not about them. It's about Margot and it's about Karen. So 
definitely seek it out. Yeah, I would recommend this as well. I mean, this it is a very strong character piece, and it is rare to have such a female-centered film. I say this early in Hollywood history, but really, this is about the middle of movie history, and we're finally getting female-centered films. I mean, the first film, per se, was made in 1885. I know Exiting the Factory was first premiered in 1895, but they were doing a high-speed photography in 1885. Here we're looking at 1950. So that's about the midway point between the invention of films and 2015, and we're currently recording in late 2020. So yeah, we are about halfway through before we get something that's got more than just the one strong female character. Like Gone with the Wind had Scarlett O'Hara, and who else for the women? Right. Whereas this one really is the story of the women involved, with the full backing of the studio to make a very high-quality film. It was written and directed by a man, but still, he made it happen. So then I think next up we will talk about the following year. So as we said, the, uh, the next movie is going to be the winner from 1951. So that year, the award went to An American in Paris, beating out Decision Before Dawn, A Place in the Sun, Quo Vadis, and A Streetcar Named Desire. An American in Paris, looking at it now, we want to start telling people where they could find the movies if they want to watch them. According to Decider.com, that is included in an HBO Max subscription. So if you have subscribed to HBO Max, then you can watch An American in Paris at no additional cost. It's also available to rent for $2.99 or to buy for $9.99 US from the Microsoft Store, the Google Play Store, the iTunes Store, and Vudu. So you do have options for that. Plus, naturally, it's also available on DVD and Blu-ray. That is An American in Paris, which is going to be, I think, our first Gene Kelly conversation. And based on these nominees... I intend to watch both An American in Paris and, if possible, A Streetcar Named Desire, because those are the two that seem to have really stuck with the American zeitgeist on that list of five. Maybe A Place in the Sun would come in third? Yeah, I, w- I would say if you can squeeze a third one in, maybe A Place in the Sun. I, I have Clovis, I just don't know that I'm going to be able to fit in a three-hour film bef- before we record 1951, but... Okay. Well, that said, I just want to thank everyone for listening and join us again next month for An American in Paris. Thanks for listening. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get.